Commerce, everyone. Welcome to this podcast. This is your Christian Mehra. My guest today is Dr. Brian Keating. Dr. Keating is a Chancellor, distinct, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics in the University of California, San Diego. He's a public speaker. He also has a podcast, uh, which is called Into the Impossible. But today we are going to be talking about Dr. Keating's book, Losing the Nobel Prize, A Story of Cosmology, Ambition, and the Perils of Science's Highest Honor. Dr. Keating, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. All right, Dr. Keating, I always do this. Whenever I have a discussion on the book, although today's discussion is going to go maybe outside the purview of the book too, but I, 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 I always start with this question with every <clears throat> author. Why this book? What led you? What were the circumstances where you decided, okay, I need to write about this? Yeah. Yeah, I never planned to write a book after writing a PhD thesis. Uh, it really wasn't <clears throat> something I was planning to do, but I always told myself if there's ever something where only I can write a book, I will write that book. In other words, it had to be worthy of my unique uh, imprint, imprimatur, however you want to say it. And I didn't you know, honestly feel like that was necessary for most of my life until I was a part of and witness to uh, an amazing event in world and scientific history. Some called it the most important discovery of all time. And I felt like uh, the, uh, the intricacies and sort of the backstory of how this came to be both so highly regarded as such an important story, uh, the most you know magnificent discovery in all of time, perhaps Im implicating fields as diverse as philosophy, theology, uh, religion, um, as well as uh, fundamental physics, uh, as well as telling the story Kushal, of, a, of an experimental cosmologist. You're probably familiar with Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene and Lisa Randall and Jenna Levin and, uh, uh, and, and many others that uh, have been on uh, my show at least, uh, Giant Narlikar uh, is just one that comes to mind. Uh, these are all theoretical cosmologists, theoretical physicists. And I felt there was a lack, there was a gap. There were no stories told by the people that are acquiring the data that allow these brilliant theorists to speculate on the origin of space, time, matter, God, etc. So I felt that was a unique opportunity and th thus I was prepared to write the book. All right, so, so let's get into because uh, I think my duty as a podcaster, especially in India, I have a lot of young kids watching this, especially in India. We are a very young country. The average age is like 27 years. And most of the audiences of this podcast are, are young kids. So so if I was to request you to explain, let's begin with this. Could you explain what the background imaging of cosmic extragalactic polarization is? Or as you call it in the book, I, I don't know, we should pronounce it bicep and bicep yeah. one and bicep two, right? Yeah. So so could you explain it for, let's say, the young kids who are watching this? What exactly is that? So bicep, uh, this telescope is a telescope and all telescopes are time machines. Uh, when you look out in the universe, as long as there's nothing in your way, you can see back theoretically to the beginning of the origin of light and matter, etc. And so we knew that we could do that. And the reason to do that was, uh, was you know, on one hand it's simple, on the other hand it was quite complex. We wanted to understand by imaging this particular type of signal called the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, which is a pervasive glow of radio microwave energy that comes to us in all directions at all times of the year. It was discovered in 1965 by Penzias and Wilson. This signal, we wanted to know where did it come from? <laughs> uh, and to understand where it came from, 
you'll have to go uh, and look even farther out into space and farther back into time. And for technical reasons, you can't do that with electromagnetic radiation, with light. You can only do it with uh, what are called gravitational waves, waves not in uh, the electromagnetic field, but in the gravitational field. So if I take something very massive like my own bicep and I, and I shake it back and forth, I will generate perturbations in the gravitational field that surrounds me. Those, according to Einstein, propagate also at the speed of light, even though they're not electromagnetic radiation. So light has this wonderful property that it travels as fast as, as possible, but it's not the only thing that can travel at that speed. Also, um, uh, certain objects uh, called neutrinos may travel at the speed of light and, uh, and gravitational waves as well. And so it was fascinating to have this opportunity to peer back to reveal not only the current composition of the universe, but what were the conditions that prevailed during the time at which the universe sprang into existence, perhaps? And that was the origin of, of why I decided to propose this project called BICEP, which later became BICEP2 in an evolutionary uh, growth, not unlike your iPhones or your Android phones. Each, each model gets better than the next, uh, than the last. So uh, for those reasons, we built this telescope and we took it to the very bottom of the world, Antarctica. So it's also a travel journey. It's a, it's a sort of a, a memoir of what it's like not you know to be a cosmologist looking for the experimental traces of the biggest, most important event in the universe's history. All right. So so, so let's talk a little bit about this uh, uh, now. Let's let's peel a little be a bit more. So if I was to ask you, what was the fun bit? Uh, conceptualizing it, designing it or eventually getting to work on it or using it in the long term? Which one, which process did you enjoy the most? Um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. There's all parts of it are enjoyable and all parts of it are mundane. In other words, there's, <clears throat> there's no part that's pure ecstasy all the time. Uh, you know, thinking of it, conceiving it, designing it. There's a lot of intricacies. There's a lot of details. Um, fielding it, taking it to the South Pole. Uh, that's a huge story uh, component of, of my life and the book. Uh, and then uh, acquiring data. These signals are so faint that it took three years uh, to acquire them, even from the most pristine location on the planet's surface, uh, to do so. And then it takes years of supercomputer time to analyze the data that, that we collected. And then finally, there's, the, um, there's a reconciliation of the data with uh, our theoretical hypotheses or understanding of the dynamics that could have caused these signals to originate and also to rule out sources of confusion of uh, masquerading marauding signals that could impersonate and be imposters for what we're trying to measure. And then writing up a paper uh, and then uh, eventually there were some, uh, there was uh, quite, a, quite a good deal of publicity that the leaders of the team, I had been removed from the leadership by that point, but uh, by the time it was announced, it was announced at a press conference at none other than Harvard, the you know reputed gold standard of all of academia around the world. <laughs> so there was no time in there where it was pure joy and ecstasy, um, uh, except for maybe a fleeting moment when I thought the signals would really persist and, and that we would indeed win a Nobel Prize, somebody would win a Nobel Prize perhaps, but those, even that moment was was truly uh, dwarfed in the large span of history by the letdown. Obviously, my book is called Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, not winning the Nobel Prize. So uh, the spoiler alert has to be acknowledged that uh, the signals did not remain undisputed. And in fact, we were essentially forced to retract our claim uh, that we had detected the 
the first instances of the universe's birth. All right. So, so now that you mentioned the Nobel Prize, now now I want to talk about this. So I was so when I was listening to your book on Audible, I always used to ask my this. I clearly remember this question popping up in my head all the time. Mm. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy who has a business who runs a podcast. But always, you know, scientists are held in in a certain awe. Uh, uh, I don't know if scientists know that, but if they don't, I guess oh, I'm yeah. letting them know that. <laughs> so, how, what? So, how does one go about living your life as a scientist? Like, we're all human beings, after all. We all have goals. We all have aspirations. We all want to achieve one thing or the other. But talking about the Nobel Prize, because this book is basically about your journey, where you are. In, in you know doing these experiments and trying to find out a particular truth about our nature or reality in general and you're obviously going through this process of maybe hoping that the nobel prize is around the corner so what according to you uh, in sanskrit we have a word called dharma uh, so uh, i don't know what how would i translate it in english i mean what is a scientist's essence or a duty so what exactly is a scientist dharma then or their essence or duty can they have a specific goal like let's say no i'm going to work towards a nobel prize and that's why i need to do this process or this research mm. well you know i'd be lying if i said <clears throat> that the um that the universe you know doesn't sometimes conspire to have other means of attraction for scientists. In other words, that we are not guided by uh, attributes other than the purest scientific goals. In the case of myself personally, I'll say that I always viewed, since I was a young graduate student, um, I always viewed the Nobel Prize as sort of the ultimate aspiration because once you get to graduate school as a scientist, at least in physics, you're no longer graded, you're no longer judged, and, and yet you still have all these uh, so-called finite games to, uh, to uh, complete and succeed in, uh, where there are winners and losers, and it's not an infinite game the way that science itself is. Meaning that if you have a, uh, if you, if you have a notion of, uh, of grading in science after graduate school, it's to get a next job, which is to become what's called a postdoctoral researcher. After that, it's to become a faculty member, perhaps, in my case. Uh, which is, and, and the odds go down, you know, very, very rapidly. Uh, it's like, I'm sure in India, you know, cricket is very popular, right? So um, yeah. I'm sure there are, pot, there, are, there are professional cricket leagues and it's almost impossible to get to the step right below the professional club and, uh, and then make it into the, in, into the major leagues or, you know, we call it baseball here. Uh, but in science, it's actually reverse. It's, it's actually easy in a certain way, comparatively speaking, to get what's called a postdoc. And then it's almost impossible to get a faculty job nowadays. And I'm not even sure I would get a faculty job nowadays. Although when I was hired, I was hired, I was told by my chairman at the time that part of the reason I was hired is because they thought I had a good chance of winning the Nobel Prize. And this was by a gentleman whose father, um, Nikolai Basov, had won the Nobel Prize uh, for the discovery of the Maser back in the 60s. So the pressures are enormous. And, um, and there is only so much funding. There's only so much attention. There's only so much regard and publicity that you can get in science. And, and for that reason, the Nobel Prize is sort of elevated to almost a religious-like status, as I talk about in the book, uh, replete with all the attributes of a religion, 
with a founding myth, with a founding father, with a high priesthood, with holy days, one of which is coming up in October when the Annunciation is revealed of who won the Nobel Prizes this particular year. And then there's the Coronation Festival held not on the day of Alfred Nobel's birth, but on the day of his death. It's kind of macabre. And, uh, and, and, and you're forced to wear certain regalia and, and there's flowers from his crypt that are placed there. It's, it's all very bizarre in some ways. Um, and yet it has become the most, uh, the most prestigious accolade, not only in science, you must realize, but in all the world, because um, the Nobel Prize winners are often asked to opine on various positions far outside of their field, uh, uh, which I learned recently from a guest, Ben Shapiro, is called ultra-crepitarianism, which I, I can't find <laughs> where the word exists, but he mentions it all the time. I had him on recently, and that'll come out soon. Uh, but it's people speaking outside their domain. So that's why every four years, 70 Nobel Prize winners sign a petition you know, that uh, yeah, a certain Democrat should be president, or they might opine about the Iranian nuclear deal. And you might ask, what is a cosmologist or a or as someone who studies superconductors, what do they know about uh, international geopolitics? And it's this conflation uh, that is known as the halo effect, that if you're brilliant at one thing, you should be brilliant at many things. So a famous example I use is Albert Einstein. So Albert Einstein had uh, many, many brilliant ideas in physics, and uh, but he was also reputed to be a pretty lousy husband and father. And so we, we should be very careful. And he was a pacifist and an uh, ultra, anti-nationalist, uh, meaning that it was kind of a surprise when uh, Israel asked him to be their second prime minister. Uh, what, what is, why would you select a person whose, uh, whose position is antithetical towards the existence, not only of your nation, but of any nation, uh, and yet you want yeah. to be your prime minister? So anyway, it's an example of the halo effect, and that's redounding from the benefit, one of the benefits of winning the Nobel Prize. So it is a huge thing. It was for me. I can't speak for my colleagues. But I do, you know, discuss in the book all the different ways in which the Nobel Prize is regarded as the ultimate A plus, the ultimate, you know, gold star, literal golden graven image featuring a picture of Alfred Nobel, and it's it's really captivated the world not only of science but of uh, and, and all varieties as well. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, the halo effect working. I don't know if you would agree with me in the case of Noam Chomsky. Now, obviously, uh, if it is in his field, which is linguistics. I have a lot of respect, but then uh, I don't know why the American media always seems to go to Noam Chomsky about American foreign policy. I have never understood. I, I thought he was a linguist, uh, linguistics expert, not a foreign policy expert. But uh, I guess I, I, I kind of relate with uh, what you're talking about here. But now let's let, actually I find this very fascinating, the way you explain how the Nobel Prize is structured, the aura around it. It it what does it say about the human condition that the scientific effort or the scientist has always been spoken about and showcased as this rational outside observer. Uh, the scientist is the person outside the room looking at the world as if the world is just a bunch of subjects that the scientist <laughs> is going to observe. And then the scientists will sit on the high chair and give their the expert opinion. But this sounds like you know, as humane as possible, a scientist has those same pangs and so those same aspirations, feelings of jealousy, feelings of being left out, mm -hmm. feelings of, oh, my God, what am I going to do if this doesn't happen? What if I don't get tenure or uh, track in my position? So, so, so it again comes back. Then 
how seriously should I take the Nobel Prize? Well, I think it's a matter of, you know, whether or not you feel like society as a whole benefits from, from venerating such awards. Uh, you know, nobody really uh, venerates the Oscars, you know, here in America, the Academy Awards, right? Um, so nobody looks to Academy Award winners on who should, uh, who should uh, you know, which side of an Iran nuclear deal we should take, right? It's preposterous. And yet, uh, in that, so it's a matter of, well, who whose experts do you choose? And the famous uh, expert, Richard Feynman, said of experts, he said, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And an illustration of that is, imagine if you were, um, you know, Isaac Newton, and you trusted the expert wisdom of one of the greatest philosophers of all time, Aristotle, who said that, uh, or Galileo, rather, so who just trusted Aristotle and said, no, heavier objects fall faster than lighter ones. So I, I should trust the expert, Aristotle, right? And similarly, should we trust the expertise of, of you know, Galileo? No, Isaac Newton would never have come up with the inverse square law and, and other things if we had just trusted uh, the laws of Galileo because Galileo thought the tides on earth were caused by the sloshing of water as the earth revolved and rotated around the sun and its own axis. So that's totally wrong, but he was an expert. I mean, he was one of the greatest thinkers in human history. Similarly, Isaac Newton thought action occurred at a distance instantaneously. Einstein thought that was wrong. We now know Einstein made many, you know, so this is the whole process that science advances because you question the the, uh, the authorities. Now, I think it's so interesting that people always quote Feynman and say, I'd rather have um, you know qu uh, questions that cannot be answered than answers that could not be questioned, meaning that in religion, one uh, has to appeal to an authority that cannot be questioned. I actually don't believe that's true, um, and I'll give examples of that later, but uh, but but then in science, we just blindly trust, oh, Einstein said this, or William Shockley, uh, inventor of the transistor, he said this. Well, he also said that blacks are inferior to whites. You know, so do you listen to him? Uh, Fritz Haber developed the fertilizer that feeds, you know, all of India and America. And, uh, and, and do we listen to him? Yeah, and by chemistry maybe. But he also advocated for chemical weapons to be deployed against allied troops as a, German, as a Jewish German na uh, nationalist in World War One, and personally witnessed the, you know, the, the killing of tens of thousands of allied troops. So do you listen to him about international relations? Of course not, so it's ludicrous. And yet we do tend to listen and to uh, revere those who have the Nobel Prize. And we should revere their, their knowledge, but knowledge and wisdom are two very different things. Uh, I agree. Uh, I found one particular quote in your book very interesting, where you say the Nobel Prize today is a reward mechanism that discourages collaboration, celebrates authority, and sets up a rat race where claims taking speed and greed are encouraged. Now, that that's, for an outsider, is a very scary thought. Because again, as, as we say, whether we like it or not, um, human beings, to expect an average human being, to actually go and fact check everybody's claim that is presented to them in front of their face is, is just impossible. Now, I'll tell you why this is even more dangerous in today's day and ages, because we live in the age of social media, where we are in, in a phase where our brains are not even capable of handling the kind of opinions we are bombarded with on a daily basis. Now, yeah, somebody might come back to me and say, well, it's voluntary, you can switch it off. But right. the point is the, the entire function is based on, as they say, you know, the refresh button is like the 
the, the slot machine and that's why you just have that rush all the time and on twitter but the point is in such a scenario with the halo effect very very real and very much around us how do we then check this problem because i want to get into religion in the latter half so i want to now focus on this because in the book you also talk about possible steps that we could take to fix this problem of the nobel prize committee because at the end of the day it's not the nobel prize it's the committee that's the problem because the prize is just a thing that you're going to get but it's the process that is decided by the committee right that would be the problem mhm mm yeah exactly so yes i don't i'm not advocating that people should uh <clears throat> should you know reproduce the large hadron colliders you know higgs boson discovery and 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 everything um the average person doesn't need to do that but if there is a mechanism within science that has as its ultimate pinnacle the nobel prize then uh then it's not science that needs to be questioned it's scientists and i think it is uh, very valid to question scientists uh and for that reason i think you know looking at the at the you know kind of foibles and and flaws of this uh of this prize which is given by a private or you know organization or you know they could do whatever they want uh nevertheless it does have an outsized impact on what happens in society and so i think it's it's more that scientists should be questioned rather than science should be questioned and the notion that science is done by autonomous robots who have no emotions biases prejudices or or peccadillos i think that's uh that's an image of science that's sometimes cultivated within science because we do kind of revere it in our in our secular age i think we've come to you know have science as almost a a, a virtue of being worshiped because it's so powerful and because it does so much and because it provides so much useful technology that we that we rely on and yet we have a no almost no understanding of how most of it works according to most lay people so it's a shortcut it's a hack it's a way of saying i don't have to do, put in the work which is you know fair i i don't know exactly you know they say that there's no one individual or company that can make a pencil you know even something as simple as a pencil all the steps all the designs all the properties if there's no not, let alone ligo or bicep these are not things that any one person can really truly comprehend so i think it's more of having a healthy kind of skepticism which scientists should cultivate and they should let their um foibles be known uh for example i advocate you know in the book and in subsequent you know uh, talks that i've given when we publicize things via a press conference or via uh, a front page article in the new york times or in mumbai or whatever uh we should also reserve some cash uh for a potential retraction and that retraction uh should have a press conference in other words you know measure for measure an eye for an eye <laughs> a press conference for a press conference and in doing so i think that'll be a very powerful way to demonstrate to people in the you know community that is not scientifically inclined that scientists are worthy of being trusted otherwise we should do away with these press conferences because i think that's really turning science into more of a sport than it should be also something that you touched upon in the book was the 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 aspect where the amount the number of women that have received the prize and and the weird process that i found that 
how many members of the team are allowed to be announced i, I just found that rule to be so absurd as if uh, you just explained to me that you know it's a process and it, it's it's basically one person to the other person to the third person to the fourth person so so uh, i forgot the name of the author i recently read a beautiful book about how innovation works uh, I, i'm completely blanked out about the author but that's the beauty right innovation works where one piggybacks on the other and it's a slow process how how a meme evolves so meme starts at point a and then it goes so but the nobel committee has like this weird rule where only x number of people are involved <laughs> and even in that uh, i think uh, a few females have been left out and the only one who got it was also because of this weird sort of a scenario so could you talk a little bit more about that yeah so the nobel prize is a private prize that was established for uh the benefit of all mankind it was established by the death of alfred nobel who was a um a swedish inventor who invented dynamite most famously and 354 other patents uh he was one of the richest people in the world this was a huge invention it actually saved many lives uh corresponding in contrast to his previous inventions which usually involved you know missiles and cannons and explosives for war and so part of it was you know clearly to rehabilitate the the name and the image perhaps of the nobel family and uh and it was quite successful because it's it's really taken over our understanding of what science is and 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 also literature uh and chemistry and and medicine etc so um however he established a certain set of criteria in his will why it was given how it should be given to whom it should be given and uh those different criteria have been more or less ignored or modified by subsequent nobel prize committees long after his death and as a, a jewish person as i am one of the highest mitzvot or good deeds or it's actually literally translates the commandments is to uh is to honor the wishes of the dead. And the reason is very simple because when you honor the wishes of the dead, you're doing so completely selflessly. You know, the dead aren't going to, you know, come back at least in my tradition and then bury me or take care of my will. So I thought to myself, well, how would, you know, a Jewish uh lawyer look at this? And I'm not a lawyer, uh but I I looked at it and I said, what did he want and what is it has it become? and would he agree with what it's become in my opinion no i mean this is just kind of counterfactual history uh but he said it should go to one person for a discovery made in the previous year and that discovery should have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind meaning that it should have some practical purpose now it doesn't mean you can't give it to theoretical discoveries but clearly back then most of the nobel early nobel prizes were for inventions like the x-ray machine uh and then uh, discoveries like radiation uh things done in laboratories not for you know conjecturing the higgs boson or something like that i do believe that does benefit mankind in a certain way uh but the 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 notion that that somehow we're respecting some of his wishes you know they didn't change it that it should go to mathematics uh they kept it in physics chemistry they did add uh, economics which he didn't support and in fact his uh great grand he had no children and so he had but he had nephews and they had children his great grand nephews have uh, basically tried to litigate Uh, to remove his name from the economics prize which no longer is called the nobel prize in economics because of their work that he was really mu- uh, very much against it uh would have been so there have been changes uh, that they made that have been undone by individuals of course those are very special individuals that carry the name nobel uh in this case my uh, agitation was for simple reforms that they could make tomorrow to give it posthumously 
to give it to uh, particular women who deserved it uh, that were unfairly excluded. And we know that they deserved it because their male, male counterparts did win the Nobel Prize uh, for their work on the exact same projects. And then lastly, that it should go to as many people as you know, conceivably played a decisive role in the experiment or discovery, not just three people. It's completely arbitrary. So if they changed it from, uh, from one person that Alfred wanted to three people, uh, there's no reason we can't change it to as many people as participated. Except, Kujal, you have to think, why are they not making these reforms? That even the Nobel laureates I speak to on my podcast, I've interviewed 10 of them so far. I have a new book coming out uh, by the time this is out called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. And I interviewed uh, nine Nobel laureates for that book. And almost every single one of them says, no, the Nobel Prize should be given to as many people as possible that participated in the discovery. And so this is something that the winners are claiming they want to have reformed, and yet they won't do it. Now, you have to ask yourself why. I don't know why. I speculate in the book as to why. Uh, but um, but for now, it has not changed. That's fascinating. It's a, it's actually indeed fascinating. Now, uh, so just for the record, the, the, the book was uh, by Matt Ridley, How Innovation Works. I, I, I had blacked out then, but yeah, I just remembered the name, so I thought I'll share. So now, Dr. Keaton, let's get, I, I want to now divide the latter half into three parts. Now, this may not necessarily, it's not entirely disconnected from your book because your book is also a lot about your personal journey as a person, as a human being, also a lot about your beliefs. But let's start here. Uh, as far as, so I remember having a chat with Karan Jani uh, a while, while ago, and, and I had asked Karan this question too, where I was like, do you think as of now, uh, physics as a field or maybe understanding the nature of the cosmos, do you think there is a string theory bias in the field itself? I definitely think there is a notion of bias uh, that is coming from in, intrinsically perhaps humanistic reasons. In other words, you know, based on our perceptions, based upon our um, desirable features of, you know, academic or abstract theoretical physics. Um, yes, there are sort of um, concessions that people have mentioned. This goes back to the 90s and, and even earlier when string theory was still in kind of full gear and, and had at least at that point passed all tests that you know could conceivably or plausibly be proposed. And it's a very old idea. I, I did a video, several videos about string theory on my channel uh, where I just go into the details as an experimentalist of what a string theory that is viable should preserve and what aspects should it uh, should it encompass. And in so doing, I look at the the attributes of uh, you know experimental testability. I look at uh, the explanatory power, how many assumptions does it make, how few things uh, does it require uh, to explain those things. And you know, in almost all cases, I find it very hard. Uh, to really substantiate the durability of string theory uh, after not passing, let's just say not passing, I don't want to say failing so many tests, but let's just take the biggest one of all. String theory posits that uh, to unify the forces of nature, the, the nuclear electromagnetic forces uh, with gravity, uh, it can only be accomplished in 10 or 11 dimensions meaning that in addition to the you know three spatial dimensions that we know and love, up, down, left, right, backwards, and forwards, there are actually seven or maybe even eight more dimensions or you know six or seven more dimensions. And we can't, you know, now you have to explain why we don't see those dimensions, why we don't encounter those dimensions. 
And so then you have to hide the evidence. So you have to say that, oh, no, no, these, these dimensions only exist at incredibly small scales. And then these scales, um, you know, at first could be tested by very large, powerful microscopes like the Large Hadron Collider. And then when that was failed to observe, we have to then say, no, no, they're actually much smaller than that. And so you start with this very big, you know, goal of unifying the laws of physics, which itself is motivated by past successes, you know, one in particular unifying electricity and magnetism as two sides literally of some kind of a coin uh, where they're actually just the same phenomenon in a different garb. And when we look at that, we have to, you know, say, well, what is the, what is the gain divided by the inputs? And in string theory, it's very, very large. And this has been going on for over 100 years, people looking for additional dimensions that would cause a simplification and therefore compactification of the laws of nature. And I've had on many scientists on my show, and including Kamran Bafa and people like Michio Kaku and many, many others. And, you know, to date, they have not yet really convinced me that there are novel predictions that would not be have been predicted and that we should preserve you know, string theory as it is, at least, um, without severe modification. There, there are other aspects of string theory that require, you know, things that we know not to be true. Not only that we can't see them, that they're actually wrong. A certain type of acceleration of the universe is predicted by string theory. We observe the opposite. Instead of, instead of um, you know, deceleration, we observe acceleration. These would be killers to almost any other theory, you know, of electromagnetism. If you predicted uh, there should be all these magnetic monopoles floating around, and we don't see those, then uh, I think it would be quite uh, quite astounding that people would still have confidence in electricity and magnetism. Yeah, another thing that has always and and you could dismiss this question, but I don't know. I, just again, as an outsider, something that has always perplexed me is the lack of experimentation. Because you are someone who does experiment all the time, what what I see is a lot of models and a lot of advanced math. And the math is sound, the math is sound, the math is sound. That's all I hear all the time. But really, when it comes to, you know, as they say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, I don't know, Floyd Mayweather would always say that uh, at the box <laughs> of the <pan. laughs> So uh, I somehow feel a lot of these claims when it comes to physics actually do not get into that next level. And, and as you, as someone who actually does get into the business of testing a lot of things, uh, do you feel a sense of frustration at times? I, I, I do and I don't. Uh, there are valuable you know, aspects of studying things that can't immediately be tested. Um, and the question is, how long do you allow it to survive? And again, this is a reason that I feel it's important to hear from let me say non-theorists, you know, like like the Brian Greens and the Stephen Hawkings, et cetera. We need to hear more from experimentalists because you really can't keep an experiment going year after year if it's not uh, working, if it's not provable, if it's producing incorrect results in conflict with the other previous scientific literature. Uh, it's not passing peer review, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, when I think back to the 1800s when electricity and magnetism were first unified, by a famous Scottish physicist by the name of James Clerk Maxwell. He uh, posited that the waves of electricity and magnetism were conveyed through a medium you know, called the ether later. And that furthermore, there was actually at a very small scale, there were these little tiny whirlpools and gears that allowed a wave 
to propagate from you know right to left, it would be these little microscopic gears, submicroscopic. You can't even see them, he said. And they'd be so small. And we, of course, know that's ludicrous. There are no gears in space made of crystalline ether. Uh, but imagine the penalty if we had thrown out that baby with that bathwater. And we would have been delayed and deferred the progress of history in physics and beyond for technology depends upon the laws of electromagnetism for decades as we wait to see, oh, no, he's been falsified and therefore it's not good science. I, I think that's uh, kind of poor. I will say that uh, folks such as my friend Giant Narlikar, um, you know, who still maintain the status of the steady state universe effectively, not a Big Bang, he's still a vocal critic of the Big Bang as was his PhD advisor, Fred Hoyle, um, that, that there are, you know, kind of, there are aspects of that theory that he and his mentors and friends and colleagues provided, the quasi-steady state theory, that are virtuous and they have some uh, validity and maybe even led to some discoveries and predictions that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. So it's important to even have a theory that you believe is wrong, but keep it around for a little bit of time. Uh, in order to um, fully steel man, if you will, the opponent's theory, because I think that's the best way to get at the truth. Yeah, and 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 I and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed your your chat with Jayant Narlikan and Mangala Narlikan. That that was the that was interesting, and mm -hmm. I loved the way how she uh, telling the questions. It was awesome, and yeah, the last bit where she. She, yeah. She, yeah, she because she's so, so good in her own way because she's a mathematician and she's so recognized in India. So it was a lot of fun to listen to them. But this, this question that you're talking about, that again, uh, obviously when I use the word orthodoxy in science, it's very different from a religious orthodoxy. I don't literally mean it to be like a religious orthodoxy. And orthodoxy in science is basically, you know, a point of view that most scientists seem to agree upon, but uh, it is obviously based on the scientific process. But do you think there is real merit in having these parallel ideas of how the cosmos actually came about uh, in that sense, in real sense? Yeah, I do. I think that there are, um, because of the inscrutability of the early universe, because we can't really um, measure or even go back in time and, and observe this, even with a telescope, we can only observe the aftershocks of that event. And there's plenty of evidence for the Big Bang as a Big Bang, but not necessarily as the beginning of the universe. And even Giant and, and Fred Hoyle and others would, would admit that, that there's, uh, we have to, and in fact, Fred and, and Giant played a huge role in this, and, along with his colleague Taylor, back in the early 60s, showing that you couldn't make enough helium, which uh, we observe in the sun, and uh, and that's why it has the name helium, uh, that, that you couldn't make enough in stars alone. And actually, Hoyle helped to establish that, and Narlikar later, um, that this, this process was insufficient, and you needed to produce something at an earlier stage in the universe. The problem that I think a lot of cosmologists have, and that they've fallen into a shortcut of thinking about it, is that the Big Bang is the beginning of time. And there's nothing that says there was one single Big Bang. There's nothing that says that the Big Bang was the beginning of time. And there's nothing that says that the evolution of the universe couldn't be cyclical in a certain sense. These are all still, as we say, going concerns. These could all still be possible. And so for that reason, the confrontation of this idea starting 50, you know, five years ago now, uh, that this is extremely valuable. And I still think there is a place uh, for 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 this in science, as did none other than Karl Popper, philosopher of science, another 
uh, matters that he thought the steady state was preferable uh, because he said it was falsifiable. Uh, and for that reason alone, I think there's a virtue in keeping around ideas that may not be correct ultimately. And that is arguably one reason why I think it's not necessarily um, anathema to physics to keep string theory going as well. I do think string, there are aspects of string theory that it's just too early to evaluate. And so throwing it out now would be, uh, would, would be a, a disservice. So yeah, now, so you just mentioned Popper. So now let's get into the next part that I wanted to ask you. Now, you've, you 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 touched upon this, uh, at least on two podcasts that I've heard. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I've not heard each and every discussion here. But I clearly remember you discussing this twice. Obviously, you asked this question to Dr. Narlikar, but you also discussed this uh, in a in a discussion, uh, in a chat with Lawrence Cross, if I remember, and you spoke about, I don't know, I think your question was, well, why do people hate philosophers so much? <laughs> and and as a humble student of philosophy myself, who reads philosophy all the time, I've, I've never understood this. Now, uh, I always hear uh, uh, Dr. Gadsad uh, in Canada, he always talks about a nomological network of cumulative evidence where basically you take the evidence from as many places as possible and then you form your hypothesis, you test your hypothesis and then it becomes a theory. Why do you think there is this allergy? I don't know if allergy is the right word, but I'll still use it. Why do you think there is this allergy to a multidisciplinary approach, especially when it comes to philosophy? Well, I think that there's a notion that philosophy, and by the way, this is very old. Uh, I have a quote in my book from Galileo where he kind of mocks uh, philosophers uh, for theorizing and, and, and uh, you know, cogitating uh, without looking at actual evidence. Um, but, um, but I think, so I think this is old as, as, as time. And, you know, arguably you look at things like philosophy of Aristotle, uh, when it was applied to natural sciences, almost everything he said was wrong, except for perhaps, you know, the existence of mammals as uh, whales as mammals. <laughs> that was certainly true. Uh, but, you know, he did so by observation, but he didn't observe that heavy things fall faster than light ones because they don't. So I think, you know, it's a complicated question. Uh, there's historical uh, aspects of it. Physicists do not make good philosophers. Physicists don't look, you know, typically at philosophy because their notion is, as David Merman would say, shut up and calculate, you know, do something. Don't just stand there. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's important to realize that, you know, we have our biases, our, our, our own particular flaws, et cetera. And, you know, maybe a blind spot is not recognizing the value of philosophy, which I actually love. I love thinking about philosophy. All right. So now I wanted to talk to you about something that you've mentioned a number of times on your, you know, podcast, or uh, you even spoke about this uh, with Michael Shermer. So, so you call yourself a practicing devout agnostic. Uh, now, for A, could you explain what a practicing devout agnostic is uh, and why are you that? Hmm. Well, I think it's, uh, from my perspective, scientifically speaking, there's no way to prove the non-existence of God. There's no way to prove the existence of God either. So in a certain sense, we're all agnostic, uh, but the, the, which, is mean, uh, which means, as Michael points out, it's not knowable. It's, it's, it's not that you don't know and you're kind of wavering back and forth. It's that the fundamental truth is not knowable. Now, I'm also a pragmatist, meaning that uh, my behavior is, you know, representative of my philosophy or my, uh, my, my orientation. 
And I, I think that too many people will be glib and and say that they're atheists or say that they're agnostic or say that they're theistic. And really they're, they're not. In other words, there are atheists who are deeply religious. It's just their religion is, is Mother Gaia or the Nobel Prize or, or some other phenomena that they de dedicate their life to. There are theists, you know, uh, on the other hand, who, you know, believe in, in Jesus Christ, uh, but actually their religion is more political. They're, you know, on the far right, or, or perhaps, you know, they have, they have authoritarian leanings on that side. And then there are agnostics who say they're agnostic, but actually their behavior is indistinguishable from an atheist. You, you never get an agnostic who goes to church every single week. And, and yet you should, at least I've never really encountered that. Freeman Dyson, uh, late great Freeman Dyson was my first podcast guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. And he used to call himself an, uh, an agnostic. And I would say, well, Freeman, imagine an alien. Uh, some, some of my friends think there are aliens that are visiting us. And I've done a lot of podcasts about that. But anyway, uh, imagine an alien comes to earth and then meets you and is, doesn't want to eat you. But he says, you know, what is your uh, belief in the origin of the universe and, 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 and humans? And, and is there a higher power as some other human? And he would say, yes, um, I, I, I think there are, uh, there's a possibility that they exist. And then the alien would say, well, I know that there are certain people that believe affirmatively in the existence of God, and they go to church every every uh, Sunday, and they practice, or they go to temple every Saturday. Um, I notice you don't do that. So how are you functionally, practically, behaviorally different from Richard Dawkins or, or Michael Shermer or somebody like that? How do you demonstrate via your behavior to an independent third-party observer? That, the, uh, that you are actually in a distinct category class. And I said, you don't. So my person, and I did it respectfully. I wasn't a jerk to the guy. Uh, he's one of my friends and heroes. Uh, but I did say, you know, for me, that means for me, I do have to practice uh, a version of it, even though all the while I am questioning. So my religion is, is Judaism. And Judaism has a notion of, the, of a holy trinity, uh, just like Christianity does. And it's a God and the Torah, which is the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and Israel, the, the, the sanctity, the, the special place that Israel has. Now, the word Israel, in my language, you explained to me the meaning of your language, uh, podcast title, I think it's beautiful. Um, in Hebrew, the language of Judaism, the word Israel means wrestles with or fights with God. El Elokeinu, Eloheinu is the name of God in Hebrew. And Yisro means to fight. It doesn't mean to submit as some other religions have it. And so you're always supposed to be wrestling, fighting, questioning, um, and, and, and also you know, looking for the attributes and, and, and possibilities to strengthen your faith, not to prove God, or to you know question your faith, not disprove God, because I think those are fundamentally impossible constraints, as does Richard Dawkins. So for me, being a practicing devout agnostic means taking the religion seriously enough to engage in its rituals, um, to engage in its practices, to engage in its history, its uh, its cultural aspects, as many Jews do, uh, but also take it seriously. Learn the language, learn Hebrew and Aramaic, which is not easy to do when I started at age 30, uh, and, and also to uh, to attend services, to seek out teachers. I mean, I, I told this to Lawrence Krauss. He's a militant atheist. He calls himself a militant atheist. So I said, Lawrence, you know, uh, did you, first of all, I explained to him this, this notion about Israel, and he said he never knew that. 
And I said, well, it's not really a surprise. You stopped learning about God and Judaism at age 13 when you had this ritual known as the bar mitzvah in Judaism commemorating the transition to adulthood of a young man or woman. And you had that experience uh, 45 years ago or whatever, and you no longer feel you have the need for it. But on the other hand, Lawrence, I don't think that you would accept a book critique uh, by uh, a 13-year-old. In other words, why are you so willingly neglecting any possible benefits, traditions, cultural contributions of the religion that you happen to be born into? Obviously, I was born into it. If I was born into to, uh, you know, being Hindu, I'd probably be Hindu. Uh, but, but the point being, you are accepting the invalidation, the disproof of the existence of, of, of any validity of your tradition from a 13-year-old. And you would never do that uh, based on one of your theories from a 13-year-old uh, physicist or philosopher, heaven forbid. And he agreed with that. But I, I think it's uh, it's a little cavalier that people do kind of throw around these terms, including that they believe uh, and then they might act abhorrent. I mean, there are plenty of examples of Jews who are outwardly very pious and, and believing, and they, they're not people I would want my children to emulate. So that's a long-winded way of saying what philosophically I think it means to me. And if you like, as I say in the book, it's kind of a version of Pascal's wager, right? If God exists and you don't believe in or don't act in some way, maybe there'll be some punishment. Uh, but in this case, I don't feel there's any harm in, in investigating the intellectual, religious, and cultural traditions of the religion you're born into. And I actually have a benefit because my mother and father were divorced and I was actually exposed to Catholicism. I was actually an altar boy and I never had a bar mitzvah uh, in my whole life. Uh, I, I plan to do one in a couple of years uh, when I turn 52, which will be the 13th, uh, third, uh, fourth anniversary of that event. But nevertheless, I was an altar boy in the Catholic church instead, learning about Jesus Christ and the, uh, and the apostles and uh, the New Testament. I, I never read the Old Testament until I was 30 you know, years old. So for all these reasons, I think it's important to take it seriously. And it's like, I don't fight with a four-year-old. I fight with someone equal and opposite to me. I do martial arts. And, and the most fun thing to do is to wrestle and grapple and do stuff with someone who's your skill level. Not going to destroy you and is much bigger than you. But so why not do that with the most arguably and most important notions in, of all, which is how did the universe come to be? So, so Jordan Peterson often says that he cannot prove that there is a God, but he chooses to live his life assuming there is one. I obviously would not put you in that category because you do not live your life assuming there is a God. You live your life assuming you don't know or you can't know. Like I live my life in a, in a mode where I say I don't care because I believe it doesn't add or subtract any value. But I do get it because I do, you know, myself uh, participate in Diwali festivities in my house i mm -hmm. if there is a ceremony where we call it the puja i will i will participate in it i even go to a temple once in a while once in a year i i like uh, the iskon temples i just like the whole you know song and dance and the entire atmosphere so so i do understand so my last question to you and then we'll wrap it up is i, I i'll give you my my rationale behind it so i you know i remember all new atheists and i and i use the word with full responsibility new atheists use this story all the time uh and the story is you have a nuclear holocaust everything gets destroyed then suddenly you some human beings who survive they're just going through the rubble of humanity and suddenly they find these comic books of and i've used this example multiple times on the podcast but i think you'll like it and then you find these comic books so and they the new atheist tells you 
what are those people going to do? And the natural answer is they'll take their gods. And they're like, see, religion is fake. And I don't get it. My answer to them is, see, that's the most natural thing they come to every time after every destruction. So what does it say about the human condition and the strength of religion? I don't know. Where, am I wrong? Well, I, I actually, I, I agree more with, with you, but but I think the, the uh, counting it as a comic book and a fairy tale and a fable, uh, that's intellectually dishonest of them. Meaning that um, I don't know any comic book that requires that I honor my father, um, even though he wasn't a perfect father, even though he abandoned me. I don't know of a comic book that tells me, oh, you should really honor your father. No, the, the comic books tell you, go out and kill your father, avenge his death. Um, or, or one that tells me, you know, my enemy, not my friend, not my name, my enemy, some, somebody that I don't like, and I see him struggling in the street to, you know, do something, I am forbidden to walk away from him. I actually have to help him. And you see this in, in, in all these laws. I mean, did Marcus Aurelius say all the things that he said, uh, reputed to say? Did, uh, did, um, uh, did the Buddha, did he say all the eightfold way? Did, do we know? Do we care? Isn't there incredible value in it beyond any comic book created by human beings? And maybe, maybe it was, you know, human. I don't, I'm obviously not a Buddhist, but the point being, there's a moral and ethical um, implication of accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, as they say, even if you don't believe, it makes you a better person. And there's almost nothing else like that. There's, there's nothing like you might believe in my country, we have a founding father, George Washington, and there's a myth that he never told a lie. Uh, and there, you know, he chopped down a chair. Yeah. It, okay. Is there any harm in believing? I don't know if he said it. Um, is there any harm in believing it? No. But also, is there any good in believing it? Well, maybe a little bit. But is there good in the commandment that I give away 10% of my post-tax income? Of course there is. Tithing? Where is where is that? Uh, where does Sam Harris get his you know, ability or, or what, what, how much charity does he feel willing to give? I don't know. Maybe he does a lot. I'm just saying the notion that you can't not give is a, a very old and good part of religion. And, and I think that that is a, uh, that, that is benefit and in, in, in enough. And in my religion, by the way, we, you know, you're familiar with the 10 commandments probably, uh, just as I'm familiar with the eightfold way, maybe, uh, but there's 613 commandments uh, actually that are commanded. And some of them are very frivolous. Like if you come upon a mother bird and she's sitting on a nest, you may not take the nest of eggs. You may not take the nest uh, from her with the eggs inside um, without removing her from the scene because it will cause her trauma. Who cares about some bird, you know, literally bird brain? No, it's not for the bird. Come on. It's for you. And so I think if there are things like that that appeal to the logical side, I can overcome some of the things that seem illogical, fanciful, or as your friends say, comic book almost in nature. Yeah, so I guess uh, that's what Pascal Boyer always says, the suprasensory effect that religion provides, right? And and it's just, uh, the, and which sport cannot or maybe music cannot provide in the way religion provides to maybe a post-agricultural society. So. So yeah, I, I agree with you. In in fact, I, at a personal level, I'm probably as godless as it gets. I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but I still, I, I, like, new atheists hate me. Uh, they're like, you're a traitor to the cause. You, 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 I don't even call myself an atheist. Like, I, I have a whole monologue where I say why I don't call myself an atheist. Right, I right. Yeah, to use that tag. 
Yeah. So I, I don't, I still call myself a Hindu. I believe I'm a member of the community and, and I don't want to be clubbed with the atheists. So, so, so Dr. Keating, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'll leave you with the, with the last words. So, uh, well, uh, take it, take it up well, from here. Yeah. And the last word I'll say is I have a new, a new book coming out called think like a Nobel prize winner. It's available in India and everywhere else. Uh, and it will be out on uh, September 28th. And it reveals not the knowledge of nine Nobel laureates, but their wisdom and their struggles. And it's an attempt to humanize them. You know, there's an old joke that how do you know a scientist uh, is outgoing uh, because he looks at your shoes when he talks to you. Uh, and I wanted to uh, illustrate that these are human beings, not just these godlike figures. And uh, as exemplified by the fact that they all have self-doubt, they all suffer from what we call the imposter syndrome. And if they can suffer it after winning the Nobel Prize, we should learn how to do it and uh, to confront it and deal with it for the benefit, not of all mankind, but for our own personal benefit of nothing else. And I want to thank you. And I hope someday we can go to both a synagogue together and to a Hindu uh, temple. That'll be really fun for me. <laughs> all right. Okay, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. The links to buy Dr. Keating's book are going to be in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're watching this video or later on in the audio version, you can buy, go and buy them. Please follow him on Twitter uh, and go and subscribe to his YouTube channel and podcast on all the platforms. Uh, it's an amazing platform. You find a lot of interesting discussions. Check out the ones with Eric Weinstein. You like it a lot. Uh, Eric is quite a hit in India, so uh, I, I can recommend that. I'll, I'll wrap today's discussion up over here. Please subscribe to the channel. Like the, pod, uh, like the video. You know the drill. So become a member, Patreon, all the stuff. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Goodbye.